Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. In 2012, Jerry Brown put his political power to the test in hopes of pulling California's budget out of a fiscal ditch. After failing to get a tax increase in the legislature, he was taking the issue directly to voters. And everyone agreed. Jerry Brown had a lot riding on the passage of Proposition 30. There was a lot at stake. Well, I think everything was at stake. Oh, everything. How people would perceive his governorship was at stake. If we didn't pass the increase, the state would not have gotten out of its fiscal hole. But asking California voters to raise taxes on themselves was not going to be easy. After all, this was the state that gave birth to tax revolts. And it had been eight years since voters had last approved a statewide tax increase. Since then, eight straight tax hikes on the ballot had been rejected. Even Brown's closest confidants, like his wife Ann, were nervous. I really worried about that one. I really needed Jerry to buck me up on that one because I did not think we would be able to get tax increases passed. The fact that Brown was even going to the voters was something of a departure from his first time as governor. In the 1970s, Brown's view of his role as governor was often so limited that he allowed outside forces to drive his agenda. If you're just waiting there to be hit, uh, you're going to be in trouble. So you got to be always doing something. More than 30 years later, Brown had learned that politicians can't afford to merely watch from the sidelines, that you need forward-moving goals, plans. A program, so you have some thrust. Thrust. As he capped his political career, it seemed like Brown always had a forward thrust, often taking the agenda directly to the voters. Fighting to fix the deficit, fighting to make the prisons and the crime and punishment system fair. When he considered the tax increase to help pull the state out of its deficit, he knew sitting back and doing nothing was not an option. We had the certitude of failure versus the possibility of failure. Failure was not an appealing option. And when California was pegged in the Trump era as the state of resistance, Brown resisted that mantle. Instead, he focused on persisting with progressive pushes on transportation and the environment. So I did all those things. So you, you need a thrust. From KQED Public Radio, this is the political mind of Jerry Brown. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randad Fettah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. How clearly do you see? How, how good is your eye? Get get the ins out and to get the outs in. What, what wouldn't happen? But for me, but for but for me, I reserve the right to think for myself. The right to think for myself. This is the political mind of Jerry Brown. I'm Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics editor. As we heard in the last episode, Brown took office with California's economy reeling. He tried to address the deficit with a balanced combination of cuts and taxes. In 2011, Brown's first year back in office, he blocked out criticism from fellow Democrats and enacted massive cuts in spending. These cuts to the university, to home supportive services, to schools, uh, to prosecution, uh, they're not good. This is not the way uh, we'd like to run California. But we have to live within our means. But, as Brown recounted, he couldn't get Republican legislators to go along with the second piece, taxes. But the four Republican votes needed to put the tax measure on the ballot were not there. So we're left with unfinished business, closing the remaining gap. So in 2012, Brown again announced a plan to balance budget cuts with taxes. Again, I propose... Cuts in temporary taxes. Neither is popular, but both must be done. Except this time, he would go straight to the voters by gathering enough signatures to put a tax hike on the ballot that November. The initiative would raise income taxes on Californians making over $250,000 a year and increase the sales tax that everybody pays at the cash register. That's why I'm bypassing the gridlock and asking you, the people of California, to approve a plan that avoids cuts to schools and public safety. I think it's worth taking a step back here to highlight how different this approach, proactively going to the voters, how different it was from the way Brown governed in the 70s. Back then, when a ballot initiative, Prop 13, threatened the state's finances, Brown stood by and did nothing until it was too late. The only answer to Stop 13, I've thought about this, would be to have my own counter-initiative ready Early in 1977, well, A, I didn't have the funds, and B, I wasn't geared up uh, for initiatives like I became later in my second round as governor. Now, with a more seasoned political mind, Brown had a plan of action. At the end of the day, in these types of elections, it's all about trust. That's Steve Glazer, the state senator who back then was Brown's political advisor. Since Brown was going to be the face of the Proposition 30 campaign, he could only succeed if voters thought he was trustworthy, that he had made painful cuts before asking them for more tax money. 
and whether they believe that what's being asked of them is reasonable and fair. Brown could tell voters that he'd bucked liberal interests to make tough cuts to the social safety net. But without the tax money, the state could not move forward with a progressive agenda. The second piece of Brown's Prop 30 strategy was kind of like a ransom note. Brown told voters that if they rejected Prop 30, even more cuts would follow. Still looking at nearly $5 billion in cuts. And that was going to be more teachers laid off. Unless voters approve his plan to raise taxes come fall. I think the obvious cutbacks became the fuel for the Prop 30 victory. Brown's advisor, Steve Glazer, said it was hard for voters to ignore the bad news of cuts. We also had now a full year of uh, budget impacts, and he forced much greater cuts on the legislature than anybody thought was possible. Brown's mantra was a Latin phrase, tertium non dotter, a third way is not given. You either cut or you tax. There's no, there's no third way. Finally, Brown began building a coalition to support Prop 30, even getting big business behind the idea. Business people also understand, uh, without a good school system, without a vibrant university system, you can't grow the economy. So I think It might seem surprising that companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi would get behind a tax hike. But Brown says he knew from his years of experience that it would be harder for rich individuals to band together and organize an opposition. But when it comes to just rich people, they can't go to the office and say, OK, call in all the lobbyists. What are we going to do? So that helped, too. Had it been a, a tax on business or an industry, uh, we might have had a much tougher time. Getting Prop 30 over the finish line still wasn't easy. California was climbing out of the recession and voters were hesitant about increasing taxes while the economy was still fragile. Stake, but according to a new poll, the majority of voters no longer support Prop 30, and experts say the measure is clearly in trouble. This Polls was... show Prop 30 is in danger of failing, possibly forcing deep education cuts across the state. Even Brown's wife, Ann Gus Brown, who had a leading role in the Yes on 30 campaign, feared they were headed for defeat. I did not think we would be able to get taxes increases passed. And so I sweated that out every day of it. And at a certain point, you're always like, oh, I think we'll win. We'll... And I said, don't say that. You know, don't. That was really a nail biter for me. But Jerry Brown was confident in his strategy. Business support helped raise more than $65 million for the campaign, money that Brown used to hit the airwaves. For the students and for California's future, vote yes on 30. Yeah! As Steve Glazer saw it, Brown had to make the campaign about trusting Jerry and saving California schools. Jerry was able to pass those tests. Well, a big win for the governor's tax plan voters. Proposition 31 with 55% of the vote. What many consider to be the biggest measure on this California ballot. Governor Brown taking a victory lap tonight after his controversial tax increase. Proposition 30 is approved by California voters. Under Most of the success Jerry Brown was able to achieve in his third and fourth terms as governor would not have been possible if Prop 30 had failed. Again, Brown advisor Steve Glazer. I told him after the election that I, I didn't need to stay any further, that his re-election had been set. Brown, of course, was equally confident. Obviously, he's an incumbent with a rising economy, with solving the principal problem that was perceived, namely the deficit. How could there be anything else but a victory? When we talked to Brown about his first campaign for governor in 1974, he was content to sit on a big lead he held in the polls, likening it to a basketball blowout. Even the Warriors 
when they're ahead, do they keep shooting like if they were behind? No, right? And does any candidate? I don't think so. But Brown's lead in that race 40 years earlier quickly evaporated, and he barely held on to win. Fast forward to 2014, and it seemed that Brown wasn't content to just run out the clock in his final campaign for governor. Sure, Brown barely talked about his opponent, Republican Neil Kashkari. But he built a forward-looking campaign behind two more ballot measures. We had the uh, two measures, the rainy day fund and the water bond. Proposition 1 was a $7 billion water bond to prepare for future droughts. Proposition 2 strengthened a fund where the state could save money to prepare for future deficits. And that's all I, I only campaigned for them. Governor Jerry Brown has done his best to ignore the upcoming election. He spent money on ads promoting Propositions 1 and 2, but next to nothing on his campaign for an unprecedented fourth term. The campaign trail led Governor Jerry Brown to San Diego today, but not to talk about his impending re-election. With a 20-point lead over his Republican opponent, Brown came to rally support for Proposition 1. What was the strategy there, to just focus on issues and not talk about all the great things you had done? No, Which is what campaigns about, usually do. Well, yeah, but nobody likes you to pat yourself on the back. That's never attractive. Uh, it's better to have a challenge, to lead the charge, which I did. And Brown's charge, his forward thrust, was once again embraced by the voters. Governor Jerry Brown made political history last night, cruising to re-election by winning... The two ballot measures he campaigned for, Propositions 1 and 2, both passed with large majorities. In our conversations with Brown about his first time as governor, it seemed like he kind of lost interest in the office after about a year. Like he looked around for areas where he could make a difference and didn't see any. And the culmination of his boredom was a run for president in 1976. Forty years later, after a successful re-election and economic turnaround, did he at least consider a fourth presidential run in 2016? Well, I always considered myself running, but it didn't seem plausible to me at that point. Taking on problems at home was enough to keep Brown's political mind firmly in Sacramento. And it was more interesting this time around for me than it was the first time because of all the initiatives that I was engaged in. Brown also realized that he didn't need the perch of the presidency to have a national impact. In his final term, Brown led thrusts that made California a progressive leader on climate change policy and criminal justice reform. Sometimes that meant bypassing the state legislature. Going back to the first time Brown was governor, and for decades after, California had embarked on a tough-on-crime era. Since Brown left office, voters had approved stricter sentencing laws like three strikes, while the state built 21 new prisons. They like the idea of locking up criminals because once you commit a certain crime or a number of crimes, you of your essence are no longer just a human being. You're now a criminal by your essence. So therefore, why should you ever be free? In fact, why shouldn't you be executed? And I think in many places they would execute you, maybe Philippines or some other places. But here, we don't have quite the stomach for that, so we just lock you up and forget about you. Except, then we're spending huge sums of money on this and not on other things. And since politicians in the 80s and 90s were consistently rewarded for their tough-on-crime approach, there was no incentive for them to change course. It's called the principle of enoughness, or I'll give it another word, saity. And there is no saity in the political game generally speaking. Especially when it came to criminal justice. More. Give me more. Give me three strikes. Give me two strikes. Give me one strike. 
Come on, no statute of limitations. Ann Gust Brown, Jerry's wife and top advisor, knew that it would be hard to rally votes for major change on this issue in the state Senate or Assembly. It's very hard to get anything through the legislature. As you can see, it's just... There's not a big constituency for, for people who've committed crimes. But both Ann and Jerry saw the tide turning. Voters had actually moved to the left of the legislature on crime and punishment. We've had to take it to the ballot because you can't get anything important or meaningful done unless you do it that way because the legislature won't. So in 2016, 40 years after he signed the determinate sentencing law that helped create the exploding incarceration count, Brown came up with a ballot measure aimed at reversing it, Proposition 57. Governor Jerry Brown is stepping up efforts to lower the state's prison population. Yesterday, he proposed a ballot measure that could... Prop 57 proposed allowing more credits for good behavior to reduce time in prison and earlier parole for those convicted of less serious crimes. Brown wants to let nonviolent state prisoners who work to better themselves be eligible for parole earlier. Brown made the case directly to voters that it would be fair and more cost-effective to release nonviolent offenders after their primary sentence was served. Voters in California are giving thumbs up to loosening parole for nonviolent inmates. On election night, Proposition 57 passed with 64% of the vote. But then there was this. Some big news here, Megan, huge news. Uh, actually, the AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. The election of Donald Trump would distinctly shape Brown's final two years in office. As a state where Hillary Clinton won by four million votes, California was soon labeled the state of resistance. And yet, resistance is not a word Brown takes to, at least not in this context. Well, I think resistance always was a word that I thought was overblown. I mean, when, the first time I heard resistance was the underground. You know, Camus and these people were in the resistance in France. Now we're talking about resistance from you know, well-fed politicians. So it, it, it seems a little off to me. And the idea of resisting didn't fit with Brown's desire to keep moving forward. Resistance is kind of a negative. You, know, you resist the occupation. I, I get the analogy, but I'd rather just take the thrust of what we want to do. In the months following Donald Trump's inauguration, Brown embarked on a historic legislative thrust. First was a plan to fix California's aging roads, highways, and transportation by raising the gas tax. It took arm-twisting and old-fashioned pork-barrel politics, but Brown and legislative leaders got the bill through the legislature, with the deciding vote coming from a Republican senator. In a major win for Governor Jerry Brown and state Democrats... Brown's next push was for his signature issue, the fight against climate change. He'd already established himself as a global leader on the issue. California Governor Jerry Brown spending six days here in China focusing on fighting climate change. Governor Brown travels next week to an international climate conference. That's at the Vatican, where he'll meet Pope Francis. But the, the governor traveled around the world to promote clean energy initiatives and sign memorandums with other countries to limit emissions, basically becoming an unofficial U.S. ambassador on climate change, despite official U.S. policy to the contrary. And in 2017, he would continue his efforts to push forward on the issue, not just block Trump. Back at home, California's cap-and-trade program, a complicated scheme to reduce carbon emissions, was expiring in 2020. Cap-and-trade was started by a Republican governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Now, Brown wanted to partner with Republicans in the legislature to keep the carbon market going. He couldn't envision just letting it expire. They're teed up, you're at bat, the ball comes along, you're either gonna hit it or you're gonna let it go by. And you can't let every ball go by. To get the ball rolling, Brown began talks with the top Republican in the state assembly, Chad Mays. We had months and months and months of conversations. Brown knew that his grand vision on climate policy could only go as far as old-fashioned politics could take it. Most Republicans didn't want emissions to be regulated through government mandates. Brown preferred cap-and-trade, which could attract some Republican support, even if it meant losing some liberal votes. And some people said, oh, you were negotiating with oil companies. Yes, because I had to get the Republican votes. Brown was making a virtue out of necessity, and he wanted a two-thirds vote to protect cap-and-trade from legal challenges. To sweeten the pot for Republicans, Brown added millions of dollars for ag interests. And most of the Democrats don't know a pig from a cow. I mean, they're just, I don't mean that literally, but they're not farm sensitive. Brown also made promises to liberal Democrats to get their support. He vowed to take on their top priority, addressing the state's housing affordability crisis, even if he maintained a healthy skepticism that government could make a difference in that area. We addressed housing and we said, hi, housing goal, and we did. Still, pressure mounted on both the right and the left for lawmakers to reject Brown's cap-and-trade deal as too much of a compromise. In public, Brown took on critics with unusual fervor, making a rare appearance in a legislative hearing. So I'm not here about some cockamamie legacy that people talk about. This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you. It's for you, and it's damn real. So Behind closed doors, he continued to negotiate. Somebody said it was like playing eight-dimensional chess. Mays, the Republican leader in the Assembly at the time, remembers telling Brown that he had 15 members of the GOP caucus on board with the cap-and-trade extension. Brown knew the final vote wouldn't be that easy. That was a lesson. I th in fact, I remember him saying, Chad, I know you think that you've got 15, uh, but at the end of the day, it's not going to be 15. Mays thought he knew his caucus and could deliver the votes. But he had known from his years of experience that when, uh, when the pressure comes, sometimes some folks will take the easy road. Brown was right. Late on the night of July 17th, the legislature voted on the cap-and-trade extension. One by one, Republicans in the Assembly cast their votes against the bill, and four Democrats joined them. Brown could not afford to lose another vote, and he didn't. We're going to go down to Sacramento. Governor Jerry Brown wanted it, helped lobby for it. And yesterday he got to sign a 10-year extension of California's cap-and-trade program into law. KQED Weeks later, Brown signed off on bills to fund affordable housing and make it easier for new housing developments to be approved. In what some labeled the year of resistance, Brown had instead pushed forward with historic investments in roads, housing, and the environment. Resistance sounds like defense. But you got to have offense. Uh, offense meaning initiative, leadership. Now, there is a point to resistance is, is something. But generally in politics, you're thinking about doing something. But not every thrust was a success. When Brown left office in 2019, he left two massive projects uncompleted, high-speed rail and the Delta Tunnels. High-speed rail was approved by voters before Brown took office, but he wholeheartedly endorsed the project, at least in public. Well, first of all, I felt that getting rid of it would be difficult. 
So we had a project. It's putting people to work. It, people voted for it and then pull a plug on it. That gave me pause. It also gave me pause to go ahead, but I had to choose one way or the other. He chose to push ahead, framing it as a way to get cars off the road and fight climate change. But he knew it was an uphill battle. The authors of the high-speed rail wrote in such a way to make it extremely difficult to actually carry it out. Opponents argue that major changes to the plan required going back to the voters. So the project became bogged down, behind schedule, over budget, and mired in local opposition. We've literally had dozens and dozens of lawsuits. We've lost cases, then we've won them on appeal. And the the management of large projects is extremely difficult in America. Brown could say the same for the Delta Tunnels project, an idea to move more water from north to south by piping it under the Sacramento Delta. Even after spending hundreds of millions of dollars to plan the tunnels, the project went nowhere. And when Gavin Newsom took office, he moved quickly to cripple the idea. I do not support the water fix as currently configured, meaning I do not support the twin tunnels. But Brown never stopped looking ahead. Even in his final year in office, he told us that he thought about a way to remain in state government. I thought of going back and running for uh, superintendent of instruction this time. You heard that right. A 2018 run for state superintendent of public instruction. Yeah, but then I decided that was a bad move. So another run for office is pretty much out of the question, as much as that's possible with Jerry Brown. But that doesn't mean he's done working. During our hours of interviews, as I tried to take Brown back to his past, he would often pull the conversation forward to the present, back to the thrusts he's still engaged in. On the three big ones, climate change, nuclear annihilation, and the uh, incarceration of so many young men of color, and schooling. How do you get schooling going? Those are just four. And that's when he's not dealing with some more down-to-earth pursuits. But I'm also trying to figure out how to grow tomatoes as well and and make good olive oil. When we asked Brown's sister, former state treasurer Kathleen Brown, about her brother's legacy, she said it was the pursuit of progressive achievements, the thrust that stood out. I think his lasting contribution is in restoring a belief that government can work. Jerry, in his actions and in his achievements, demonstrated that government can be responsible physically, can be morally responsible, and can be productive about bricks and mortar and planning for the future. Chad May is the GOP leader who worked with Brown on climate change policy and paid a price for it from conservative Republicans, remembers a year-end lunch at the governor's mansion. Governor Brown said, you know, I've found over the years uh, that uh, we think as elected officials that we're like that game at the county fair where you're shooting water into a glass tube. We think we're the, the gun shooting the water into the glass tube and moving the ping pong up. And he said, the truth is, we're the ping pong ball. Then a legislator at the lunch asked Brown a seemingly simple question. So this legislator said, well, so why do we do this? And his response was sort of in this philosophical way, well, you're going to have to answer that for yourself, which I think really does sort of encapsulate for for Governor Brown. He understood that the legacy, it comes and goes, and very quickly people are going to forget your name, but it's the work that lasts. It's true. Don't take my word for it. 
go stop someone on the street today and ask them what they know about Pat Brown. Many have probably never heard of the former governor, Jerry's father, even if they quickly recognize the UC system, the dams and highways that he brought into existence. Over the course of this project, we spent more than 40 hours talking with Jerry Brown at Mountain House 3 up in Calusa County. And when I asked him why he wanted to spend all this time with us, hours and hours of interviews, it was clear he wanted to leave something that would last. I'm interested in history. I'm interested in the history of the Mountain House. I'm sorry that when I was younger and all my Calusa relatives were alive, I didn't get a chance to talk to them. Brown wishes his great-grandfather, August Schuckman, who left Germany and journeyed to California, had left a diary detailing his life. About what he did here, what he planted, and what animals he had, and what the weather was like. I wish we had that journal, and maybe we're going to create it for those who come after. From the very beginning, one of the reasons we wanted to do these interviews was to get Jerry Brown's political playbook, the advice he kept telling us that no one was asking him for. As we wrapped up our final conversation in early October, Brown brought things full circle. Governor Brown, I just want to say thank you very much for all the time you spent and welcoming us up here. It's been really interesting and fun, and I hope you learned something, because I know we did. Well, I hope people consult this, because they're not consulting me. <laughs> The Political Mind of Jerry Brown is a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy Marzarati produced the show. Queen Kim is our series editor. Katie McMurrin mixed the show. And Susie Racho did the scoring. Our music was composed by Daoud Anthony. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. Special thanks to Martin Meeker and Todd Holmes at the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.